Conference. My name is Monique van Dusseldorp and I'm going to interview one of our fantastic speakers that came out all the way from Asia to Europe, Parak Hanna. Um, Parak, welcome. Thank you so much. Good to I, see you. I have understood that Hamburg is not a strange place for you, no, right? No, it's not. It's T- not tell it's us, <laughs> give us that history because I'm intrigued. It's something of a homecoming, actually. In 1994, I was an American high school exchange student and I lived right near here in Schleswig-Holstein. And I actually did my German Abitur, a year of German high school. So this is very much home. And and right here on the (laughs) Reeperbahn, where we're sitting, is where I would go and get drunk and go to concerts and party with friends. So I have incredibly fond memories. I literally grew up here. This is quite an adventure for an American student to come and and actually do high school in German as well. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't my first rodeo because we're a migrant family. So I was born in India, I grew up in Abu Dhabi, then moved to America, and then came to Germany. So traveling is nothing new for me, but immersing in German culture and going Mm. to a German school and being independent and free and taking the German trains all (laughs) over over Europe as a teenager was an incredible, magical... I mean, really, it was the best year of my teenage life. So I I have not just memories, but my identity is really rooted in this place that has nothing to do with me, like, ethnically, right? You would not look at me and say, oh, this guy's German. Typical Hamburg guy, yeah. (laughs) But but I'm actually, I'm very German. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, now for, for our German listeners and, and watchers, can you say something in, in German? Just, you know. Abgesehen von Moin. Moin, that's one of them, yeah. So my, my Plattdeutsch, which uh, everyone who's listening and local, that, that's been sort of ironed out. I've forgotten all my sort of dialects uh, from the region. But my host family that I live with taught me lots of, you know, these kind of local phrases. I've forgotten a bit of that. But, but again, I, I really, you know, every corner that I look at, in Hamburg and in the area, every train station, you know, it, I have some memory associated with it. I really do. I remember what concerts, what rap music groups <laughs> I went to listen to. Uh, I was just joking outside with one of your colleagues. I think I puked on that corner <laughs> because that's what we were. It's that's the what seven, band that's after what all, seventeen yeah. year olds do. <laughs> Drink too so, much. Yeah. You know, and the funny thing, of course, in Europe you come of age a lot earlier, right? You know, drink you can drink earlier, party earlier, all these things and you travel mm. internationally. So again for me, like the real adolescence happened here in Germany, not actually in America. Okay, so yeah. you grew up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's really good to have you. You have now moved to Asia, and you you write a I lot have. about what. Yeah. I mean, you actually write a lot about what it means to move. And it, you know, Asia is such a grown-up place <laughs> <laughs> by comparison. Uh, but yes, yeah, so I mean, you know, this is not an autobiography, but of course, it's informed by the fact that for me, mobility, which is really what this book is about, the mobility, not just of people, by the way. This book is about the mobility of everything, the mobility of technology, the mobility of goods, ideas, um, and labor people, right? But yes, you know, it's informed by the fact that I have had the the blessing, the luck to be able to be so mobile in my life. And I know that it brings such incredible benefits, not just to lucky, you know, fortunate people, not to the 1% or 2%, but to billions of people. So just to be clear, this is not a book about the jet set. It's not yeah. a book about people with six passports, although they play a small role. Yeah. But this is a book about 
what is the future human geography of the world of 8 billion people over the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So this that's is about really, everyone. It, it's huge. And it honestly is. A book just came out in German. That's English right. version we're waiting for, but the German Soon one's enough. already here. Yeah. Um, just a little bit of background on you for those that don't know you that well. Um, you are a strategy advisor. Um, you have a company called Future Map. Um, and you've been writing a lot about me. One book you wrote about is The Future is Asian. So that's. But before that, you also about wrote about hybrid realities, which is also about these interlocking worlds that we now live in. And of course, your last, your latest book on MOVE, um, you connect some of the developments we're going through now, which is climate change, uh, technology, um, societal changes with the MOVE of people. And could you briefly tell us what is the most scary vision you have and what is the most optimistic vision you have because we are we are at a sort of a, a vendor time we are at, yeah. at a time where things can really change for the worse or for the better that's right yeah. you know in fact it's it's a very good question that aligns with how i structure the book because there are four scenarios in the book so yeah. actually three of them are not particularly positive only one of the four scenarios in the book you could genuinely say represents an evolution in how we govern ourselves the other three are still rooted in the the patterns and the practices that we that define us today. Yeah. So when you say what's the scariest, well, there's one called the New Middle Ages. There's very low sustainability. Our technologies, our interventions for renewable energy and other measures are not working. Yeah. And we have uncontrolled migration, a scramble of yeah. people seeking to survive. It's a hunter-gatherer world in the 21st yeah. century is that scenario. And it's a plausible scenario. You shouldn't make scenarios that are not plausible. So yeah. each of my scenarios is equally plausible. And not to mention, it's rooted in reality. So when you say, what's the scariest future? Actually, that's the present. It's the present in many parts of the world. And, and the present is that we don't know how to fight climate change, so we'll go down that path. There are many places. Yeah. Look, the number of climate refugees in the world today exceeds the number of political refugees. Yeah. We already live in that world, or many people already live in that scenario today, let alone in the future where it could be hundreds of times more people already. Yeah. So that, that's one. The positive scenario is actually titled Northern Lights, and it's about allowing for a gradual but strategic relocation, resettlement of billions of people to stable, resource-rich, more productive geographies, but doing so in a sustainable way so that we don't trample on them as soon as we arrive at them. You know, that could yeah. be Canada, Russia, Scandinavia. You know, the irony is that the Northern Hemisphere is full of countries that are depopulating, right? Aging societies, very yeah. few children, but the weather is getting better in some ways, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. It's unpredictable, yeah. but it's still livable. Yeah. Whereas the... But, but, but the know, underlying assumption is whatever scenario we have, billions of people moving we have a reorganization of the whole planet there's almost no scenario where you don't have billions of people moving yeah. and that's not new i want to be absolutely clear because people act like the pandemic is year zero and you know we're at a standstill and we're going to stay there and migration is over that's ridiculous right yeah. for a number of reasons first of all we have had mass global migrations totaling billions of people for the last 300 years right in fact one of mm -hmm. the things that we are good at as a species, as a civilization, is actually absorbing yeah. mass migrations of populations. The 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, those were centuries of mass 
global migration. So no one should be shocked. No one should feel like it's impossible. No one should even think it's new. There will be new directions, new vectors. But the United States of America, Canada, even Germany, Britain, would not be what they are today if they had not been absorbing tens of millions of foreigners, if not hundreds of millions, over the last centuries. So, so, so in your yeah. view, that, that's not a negative, the fact that billions of people have to uproot the whole existence no, and it, take their culture elsewhere. It shouldn't have to be it that way be, were yeah. it not for climate change, which yeah. is our fault. Yeah. But can we manage it well? Can we get ahead of the complexity and the, the, the challenges logistically and ecologically and technologically and financially and culturally? Yeah. Yes, we can. If we realize, first and foremost, that it's going to happen, right, and that we have no choice because this is a process that we have unleashed, right? We have pushed nature, and now nature will push us. Very yeah. simple. Yeah. Very, very simple. And humans have a fight-or-flight instinct. Now, you could fight against someone who's trying to rob you, but you don't fight against nature, right? You, yeah. f you flee. It's human nature. So, logically speaking, we have caused climate change. Climate change will force us to flee. People will move. Billions yeah. of them will move. Okay, Get so, so that's now. the assumption. And, and you still have a positive scenario with that, where you say, okay, we can move all these, well, they will move themselves. We can move all these people to the Northern Hemisphere because it's safer there. Um, and we can integrate them in the societies there. So what should happen? Because I, th I don't think at the moment we're preparing for that. No, well, first of all, we have to ask, who is the we, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the sort of German answer and the British answer and the American answer and the Russian answer and Japanese answer are very different, right? Yeah. The one thing that is left of sovereignty every single day is that countries try to control their borders. We can't control pandemics and viruses. We can't stop cyber hacks. We can't prevent pollution from coming into our skies, right? Yeah. But we can stop people from coming into our borders. And that's never going to change, right? So this mm -hmm. is what's left of sovereignty. So you would be dreaming, you'd be naive to think that, you know, there is one common we will never have a global migration agreement. But there are countries that are smarter and more proactive in what I call the war for talent, right? The war for young talent and taking yeah. advantage of the fact that young people who have capabilities, who can become taxpayers, construction workers, school teachers, um, farmers, right, nurses, yeah. the world is full of those people. And actually, you need them. Yeah. Right? The Netherlands needs yeah. them. Germany needs them. Germany uh, has taken every surplus, you know, uh, nurse out of every country from Ukraine to Bulgaria Syria, over the last everywhere. 25 yeah. years, right? And now it's run out because those countries have aged as well. So now the German embassies all over Asia are out there trying to recruit Filipinos and Indonesians to become nurses in Germany. Now, you may be a right-wing politician, or you may be a conservative citizen who doesn't like the idea of mass migration. You may not like foreigners in your country. But your government, just in case you didn't know, <laughs> is actively trying to bring in foreigners. Now, here's the key thing, and this is a big part of the book, especially because we're in Europe right now, and we're talking to some degree about Asians, because Asia represents the majority of the human population. And it represents the majority of young people on the planet Earth, right? Yeah. Yep. The key thing is this. Here in Europe, you know, all foreigners, of course, are not alike. There is an assimilation problem with Africans, with Arabs, with some Turks, you know, various populations, right? There's a growing number of Asians here. And there's less of a problem with, uh, with Indians and Bangladeshis and Chinese and Vietnamese and people from Thailand. 
who, as I've seen myself in America, as an immigrant to America who assimilated yeah. in America, Asians also have adopted Europe, you know, to Europe. You know, some ways you might say, I don't want to overgeneralize, but better than some of the newer populations. So one of the things that I foresee will happen in European politics is a selective discussion about, you know, how do we better do we select in? by nationality? So, for example, and this is one of the stories I tell in the book is about SAP. SAP is, you know, Europe's largest software company and it's headquartered near Frankfurt. And it has, you know, 40, 50,000, I don't know how many employees. So I went there to visit the management and I was I couldn't believe I felt like I was in little India, you know, and I was like, OK, wait a minute. What would the, Europe's single largest software company be without the Indians who, again, it's not back office workers in a call center in no, Bangalore. No, 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 it's developers. And they're software IT development, guys they're senior that. people. Security Remember that people. they're more yeah. educated than you in technology, yeah. right? They're better than Germans. Yeah. right in software coding so what would europe's biggest software company be without physically importing indians and what's nice though and this is really really important because again it was also weird for me like when i lived in germany as a kid i was the only indian like anywhere around and now suddenly i'm like this ocean of uh, of indians but you know that they've they've bought little homes in heidelberg their kids go to school they speak german they teach their kids yeah. german they're assimilating they're yeah. integrating they're yeah. basically german right yeah. And that is something that's so important that, that Germans need to see, voters need to see. Now, since 2015, 2016, since the Syrian refugee crisis, there have been uh, you know, substantial numbers of Syrians and Iraqis and others who have actually integrated well. The German labor force has grown. You know, product yep. output remains high. Germany is the only country with a growing labor force in Europe precisely because this is an organized country. This is a country with capacity that says, okay, you did what in Syria? What was your job? You were a mechanic. Okay, you go over here. You take this job. You're going to start earning money, paying taxes, right? Yeah. Every country needs to do that. Yeah. And yeah. again, when you say we need to prepare, I say, well, you know, Germany is logistically prepared. Yeah. Right? It has space. It has industry. It has capacity, right? Culturally, it's not, it's uneven. Yeah. But in other countries, they would do well to learn from the experiments that Germany has been doing over the last five, six years. Uh, let's stay with this optimistic scenario. Big wave of um, populations going from Asia towards Europe, basically, right? That's what you're describing. Um, what I mean, this is a technology conference, and, and you know, we very often look at things through the lens of technology. I think at the same time that, you know, you can define the climate change problem and a solution by moving people around to a different area. But some of the structures that you need to organize this, to, to have this system in place where you know, borders are opened up and people are received and trained and, and integrated and so forth, the technology seems to you know, break up some of those systems right now. I mean, there's, there's the money flows are worldwide and redistributed and uncontrolled. There's new system in place where, you know, there's a worldwide supply chain which is breaking up sometimes, but still, I mean, it seems like we, we've lost control over some of the, the, the projects that we need to mm -hmm. guide us into a, a safer future. 
So fundamentally, the reason we feel like things are out of control is because they're complex. Complex systems yeah. are always changing. They never go back to what they were, yeah. right? Otherwise, it would just be complicated. There's an order of magnitude difference between something that's complicated and something that's complex. Yeah. Our world is a complex system, and it's always evolving. And there are so many factors and inputs driving it. Butterfly effects, right? Yeah. You know, a pandemic, you know. But the key driver of that complexity is connectivity, things are more complex because they're more connected. So you yes. have more feedback loops and influence across places and issues, right? Yes. So that's why we are where we are. But that complex, that connectivity can be a really good thing. Connectivity is the foundation for mobility, right? It allows people to pick up and move if they need to, to escape yep. disaster. You've got roads and highways and airplanes and boats and ships, right? It also has the digital mobility. So even if you can't physically move, you can be digitally connected. You can take money when you need it, right? You can do a yeah. job from someplace digitally, that kind of thing. So all of this connectivity on the one hand has created more and more unpredictability and complexity. On the other hand, it's a form of salvation because it allows, it enables that mobility as well. So this is why I'm fundamentally optimistic that we've built so much connectivity. Let's use it. Yeah. Let's use it to recirculate human beings Let's use it to relocate industries, that, that sort of thing. Okay. So what is the gloom and doom, the, the very darkest version of this scenario where all this doesn't work? Well, right? like I said, it's breakdown, right? Yeah. It's hunter-gatherer. It's, you know, infrastructure is destroyed by very frequent natural disasters for which they are not sufficiently physically robust to yeah. withstand. Political systems break down, obviously. Supply chains break down. You're not trade, you cannot trade and acquire food. Think about our far-flung supply chains. When we had an avocado, you, have an av you had an avocado for breakfast. They do not grow avocados in northern Germany, right? Yeah. So supply chains break down. Societies and politics break down. Asset values are shredded, right? Your home mm. is not worth what it was worth, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, real estate and our major industries collapse, our stock markets collapse, that kind of thing. And then, like I said, you have uncontrolled migration. People are just saying, get me out of here. I don't know where I'm going, right? So we, we um, there are, again, some places that are already like that. You've had what are called zero-day events where the taps run dry. There's no water. One day in... It's like South Africa, it ha I know. Well, it happened happens, in Cape yeah. Town, South Africa. It happened yeah. in Chennai, India. It happened in uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, yeah. right? It happened in, in, uh, in Dakar, Senegal. That's all within two years, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And, and we have cities. had heat waves in places that we didn't expect. Exactly. We had, yeah. You've got forest fires in Siberia, forest fires in Greenland, by the way. Most people don't even think Greenland <laughs> has trees. Yeah. They had a forest fire. They have now detected uh, Siberian forest fire smoke in, at the North Pole. So, you know, there isn't, I originally set out to identify specific places that would for sure be what I call climate oases, right? An oasis, uh, yeah. place, you know, a zone of calm, of stability ecologically. Yeah. But I realized that there is no perfect climate oasis because it's not just about the environment. Let's say we all decide that we're going to go to Sweden, right? Sweden's perfect. Sweden's a climate <laughs> oasis. Well, I have some news for you, as you probably know. Sweden has a hard time absorbing 100,000 migrants, let alone, you a know, million, sort of 15 yeah. million people showing up at its door. So we have to manage migration in a way that we don't destroy. Well, what is a country that, you know, from a point of view of climate 
I guess Russia seems pretty empty, right? There's lots of space there. It's pretty damn empty. Yeah. yeah. However, the only country that practically is seizing upon and embracing this reality is Canada. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for most people on Earth, Canada is on the other side of the world. But fortunately for Latin Americans and Americans and skilled Indians and Chinese, it's only one flight away across the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. A couple of years ago, well, while Donald Trump was still president, um, Canada imported more Indian professionals than the United States. Now, let's bear in mind, Canada has one-tenth the number of people as America. Yeah. But they took in an equal number of total migrants and an equal number of skilled Indians. So Canada is doing, you know, God's work, you might say, right? They have a they have a, they have a consensus, a strategy, a vision. They will increase their population by 1% every single year through migration. Yeah. That means 400,000 people. Now, here's something interesting. Germany has twice as many people as Canada, but a German government study from just a few weeks ago said that Germany also needs 400,000 people per year because okay. its population is, is shrinking faster. It has a more yeah. you know, rapidly aging population, very diversified economy, huge needs in industry, infrastructure, technology, healthcare, you name it. So Germany needs as many people as Canada. Um, and the government has said so, but unlike Canada, you don't have a you know, a, a consistent policy in Germany. You have emergencies. You know, 2015, yeah, yeah. 2016 was an Refugees emergency, right? And, so you yeah. bring in, you know, close to a million people. You know, in Canada, that's natural. It's like all in a day's work, right? But again, you know, Canada is far away and it's, it, doesn't have, it doesn't border, you know, nine other countries the way Germany does. It yeah, yeah. can really do it in a totally yeah. managed way. So I admire Canada, but I sympathize with Germany because the German dilemma is an extreme one. People from the Balkans, from Eastern Europe, from, of course, from Africa, from all over the Arab world are all pouring in. Everyone wants to go to Germany. No one wants to go to Hungary. I mean, you have like Victor Orban, <laughs> who's like, you know, anti-immigrant and nationalist. He's made it clear that nobody's welcome. Yeah. I have some news for him. No one wants to go to Hungary. Have you tried to learn Hungarian? It's like a really it's difficult very, language, very difficult, you know. Yes. And, uh, and of course, he's not a likable guy. He's yeah. not Angela Merkel, right, yeah. by any stretch of the imagination. So... Um, you know, we have to be clear that, that Germany will bear this burden for a long time. But again, you know, this is something I write about in the book, and this is both from my own experience, but more importantly, observing just the last couple of years. In Germany, there's this expression, die Neuen Deutschen, right, the new yep. Germans. And it's, uh, it's not a formal designation. It's like a discourse. It's a country that's saying, let's talk about who die Neuen Deutschen are, yeah. and let's talk about how they are part of the future of German identity. Not, you're not German, I'm German, you will become like me, and I will never yeah. change. Yeah. It's like, what does it mean to be German in the year 2025, 2030, and beyond? That kind of like rational, you know, progressive conversation is actually happening here. And I want to remind everyone, and again, this is, you know, going back to the 1990s, when I was a kid here, there was a political party, the NPD. It was, you know, right-wing... A party it was associated with neo-Nazi ideas and so forth. They're gone. Yeah, you know, lots few, of European countries there. Yeah, a few very years strong, ago it was the yeah. AFD yeah. party, the AfD. I was living in Berlin at the time. There were demos, you know, of the AfD. Where is the AfD in, in the German election scene? Right, nowhere. So I just want to remind people that populism is a very, very short-term phenomenon. At the end of the day, the law that tends to govern our decisions is supply and demand. Right. 
And that's a good thing. Supply and demand we think of as like market economics, right? But actually supply and demand applies to people as much as anything else, right? Your country, if you suddenly realize you don't have people, you open yourself up to to importing people because you realize that you will die without people. It will happen. And so if, you know, Viktor Orban doesn't want migrants, that's okay because Hungary just won't exist, right? You know, that's what's happening in Bulgaria. No one wants to go to Bulgaria either. But Bulgaria has been one of the most rapidly depopulating countries in the world. And they only have a few million people left. And it's actually a pretty big country. <laughs> and it's rich in resources. So one of the things that I'm not afraid to say that other people would obviously find scandalous is that you know there will be occupants of the space that is today called Bulgaria. And, and, they, 20, might, and they might years. come from Indonesia or Thailand. I have a feeling there are going to be a lot more people in so-called Bulgaria who are not Bulgarian in the next 10, 20 years. Now, remember, I'm a geographer. I'm allowed to say that because <laughs> I look back 100,000 years and I look forward 50 years or 100 years. Yeah. To me, it's obvious. It may offend you, but I'm just stating a, a fact and a very For, likely yeah. fact. To you, it's going to happen. So... Yeah. Um, we almost have to wrap up, but what you say is very much a, a call out to governments and politicians to be aware of this and, and lawmakers to, to accommodate the laws to make sure that this happens in an orderly way. But what is your call to companies or to citizens even? I mean, what are the other factors in society? Let's talk, let's talk about the companies. The companies are very progressive. In America, in England, uh, all over Europe, companies lobby their governments to say, please let migrants in. Yeah. We need workers. We need customers. If you're in real estate, we need occupants. We need people to pay rent, right? Towns and villages are emptying out. You know, in Spain, Italy, even Germany, you know, this has been happening in East Germany. The budgets of towns are shrinking as their populations age and die and people move out. So they can't even afford to keep libraries open. What kind of a first world society has to close its libraries because it's lost taxpayers and citizens? And then those are the places, of course, that, of course, you know, if they're rural, you know, it's understandable that young people want to move to cities. But if you're, you're rural and also right wing populist, then it's your own fault. Because, because nobody wants to move there. And you're aging. So wouldn't you prefer to have a nice nurse to take care of you when you're old? Instead, you know, I'm going to be very mean here. You will die alone. Yeah. You will die alone. If that's what you want, if that's the fate you choose, go for it. Right? And, but, but again, well, some, you will die yeah. with an iPad next to you. And You'll somebody die. in Indonesia will talk to you and, you know, well, say no, Hopefully sweet things, your maybe. children will. Yeah. But remember that family structures have also changed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, We've but had, but you, yeah. you so maybe the uh, the push for change will come more from companies because they see an immediate need for more people rather than from governments they who are who tend to do. you know speak to the population and say yeah. that we'll the keep biggest them out technology and, yeah. companies in the world the American technology companies have joined together and they spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year lobbying Congress to enable greater migration. There is a, again, a a pragmatism, a sensibility among most people that is not reflected by populist governments, not by Trump, not by Brexit, not by right winger, not by the five star movement in Italy, not by the AFD in Germany. And there's a reason why they're gone. There's a reason why Trump is gone. There's a reason why the five star movement doesn't run Italy. Right. It's because they're wrong. 
It's because their policies are stupid. <laughs> you are optimistic. Right? Yes. No, no, no. I'm an well, accidental. No, I'm an uh, accidental optimist. You just observe right? what's happening. I'm just yeah. seeing what's happening. We live yeah. way too much in the moment. We think that everything that happened today tells us what will happen tomorrow. But right now, if that were true, why is it easier to migrate to England than it was before Brexit? You know that you know after you know, even before and after Brexit, if you were a foreigner, you wanted to from an Asian country, and you want to move to England. You have to show your job offer. You have to maybe pay a deposit, probably a lot of money that you yeah, don't yeah. even have. Do you know that right now, Monique, if you want to, you can just get on a plane, fly to England. You can be an Asian. You just have to say, I graduated from this university or whatever. You have to do some documentation of who you are and what your skill is. But you're in. You're in. You're really? done. It's oh, easier God. to. So it's you very might, hard to travel back and forth right now. Well, that's COVID <laughs> that and whatnot. But, exactly. you know, <laughs> but, but the point is that, yeah. you know, again, pragmatism prevails. Britain yeah. is desperate. For truck drivers, uh, for delivery people, for nurses, desperate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So again, you you're entitled to make the wrong decision and to self-correct. And and do you? I yeah. mean, and this must be my last question. But I mean, obviously, one option would be to just let the sovereignty of a state over its citizenry be completely digital and just abolish the borders and see what happens. And everybody can be anywhere, but. You're not a citizen of that state, so you don't have rights. Yeah, I mean, big, this is a it's a big, big theme in, in, in my work is the levels and the grades and the, the different statuses that you can have in a country rather than just a binary choice. You're a foreigner mm. or you're a citizen. And I think that's very healthy. And more mm. and more countries have those entrepreneur pass, technology pass, guest worker pass, you know, a doctor pass, this kind of thing. Yeah. That's great. And you allow people a fluidity to change their status over time. You allow them to collect points and move towards citizenship eventually. Again, around the world, this has already been happening for many years, right? Most countries, you, you know how many countries had nomad visas like two years ago? Like no. One or two. Okay. Estonia. So, right? Oh, yeah, that's where you could have yeah. your digital... Today, um, 75 countries have nomad visas. Huh. Basically, you know, almost So you don't have to be there, you're just part of a citizenship. No, 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 no that's, yeah. not, that's not it. It's actually saying we want you to physically come here. Please come. We need ah. people to pay rent. We need people to yeah, eat in our yeah, restaurants. Yeah. Do your right? work from here. Yeah, it's exactly. like the islands. Exactly, and the, yeah. 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 Digital sovereignty is something different because, I mean, we forget that you still have to eat. You still want good, you know, climate conditions. So it's easy for rich people in rich countries with clean air to say, oh, I'm a digital citizen here, I'm a digital citizen there. Again, you know, in my work, I'm concerned with 8 billion people and a fair distribution of the human species. Most people don't get to say, oh, I live in Sudan, but I have an Estonian digital citizenship, so therefore my life is great. Yeah. But that's actually, your yeah. life is not great, you know, in Sudan. Yeah. So digital citizenship right now is not good enough. I think it's incredibly important. I want to see passports on the blockchain. I want to see um, uh, crypto e-wallets, right? I advocate all of these things, including digital platforms where you can uh, engage in services and receive whatever services that yeah, are that because it are will usefully facilitate digital. this movement immensely, right? I'm 100% for it. I have whole chapters about it. I, I promote it. But I'm also, fun there is a physical geographical reality yeah. and we need to resolve that as well. Do you plan on moving to Germany, back to Germany oh, anytime I'm soon? I'm always up. I mean, I come here so often. You're, you're, you know, you're yeah. now based in Singapore, right? Yeah, so, yeah. But yeah. I mean, I'll, whenever there is time for a sabbatical, it's in Berlin. You, you, know, <laughs> you know where to find me. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in East Berlin. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's very good having you here. We have five more questions for you. So, here they come. Oh, maybe I should have a... You know, because we do a little bit of break there. 
they edit this out. Sorry, guys. All right, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. All right. Parak, it's very good to have you here, and we have five questions for you. There is another planet. Our planet is doomed, and thousand people have been chosen to leave this planet and go to the next one and start a new society, and you are one of them. But you have to answer five questions. Okay. This is our challenge to you today. All right. The first question is, you're preparing, you can pack, and there's one luxury item you can take with you. What is it going to be? A tennis racket. <laughs> a tennis I'm racket. I'm obsessed with tennis. I'd bring two if I were you. <laughs> yes, that's right. Thank you. Am I allowed to? Okay, and maybe, maybe a set of and tennis ball. balls as well. Like tennis. Okay, so tennis is your favorite sport, right? Yeah. All right. Hope that there's lots of gravel on the planet, but it f I feel like there will be. I hope no one else said tennis racket in this interview. <laughs> not yeah. so far. Good. No, okay. Not so far. Okay. There's one person you can nominate to be among those thousands. Not your wife, family, but just somebody from planet Earth that you can bring along or a particular type of person that you feel, if I have to choose 1,000 people, that person has to be among the thousand. A farmer. Did you see the movie The Martian? Yes. He proved <laughs> to be quite handy. <laughs> A very, very good farmer with maybe an engineering background, right? A skilled right? botanist, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> with a bit of, you know, IT. Exactly. <laughs> okay, a farmer. A farmer is an excellent answer because we have to eat there. Okay, there's one law you can bring to the planet. Not don't kill, don't steal, we'll cover that, but one particular law that you feel like, or maybe you feel like we should have it here as well, but you have a new society to play with. What's the law you will bring? Mandatory voting. Mandatory voting. Yeah. You want everybody to vote. Yeah, it should be, you know, um, it Doesn't should be. have that in Belgium? I very think? few countries. Yeah. Singapore, Australia, Belgium, yeah. uh, just a, very few. I mean, yeah. I would like every country in the world to have mandatory voting as of the age 16, which, by the way, is Greta yeah. Thunberg has started talking about now. Okay, so it, you want to make the, the, the voting yeah. electorate younger? Yep. Yeah. Okay, so they think more into the future than mm -hmm. little people. Mm -hmm. It's true. Okay, what is one tradition that you want to take from planet Earth that you feel we should all do that as well in our new planet? Communal eating. We should all eat our meals together and we should debate and discuss, you know, over, over yeah. meals. Yeah. yeah, meals as place for discussion. Yeah. I love that tradition as well. Okay, last question. There's one piece of art you can bring, a book, music, something visual, whatever you like. What will There will be a thousand pieces of art in that planet, so it's a good start, but what will you bring? Well, I guess a Kindle is a great invention, so long as I have <laughs> Wi-Fi, I can, I can oh, read you just books bring for the, the rest whole, of my life. The World Library, yeah, you want to bring I'll the World bring Library. bring the Tower of Babel on one device, <laughs> or one object, I would bring a compass. A compass would be very useful. Uh, depending on the size of the planet, I Plus guess. Plus I'm you. like a geographer, so, you know. That's it's it. Yeah. kind of symbolic. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. A compass. And thank you for sharing your ideas about the future. My pleasure. Thank you so much.